My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Have you ever felt that you've failed God so greatly that he could never use you again? Maybe you've even concluded that you have so offended the Lord that you have no hope of forgiveness and eternal life. If you struggle with such feelings, I encourage you to listen to our broadcast today. This morning, Pastor Jones will examine the loyal love of Christ for his disciples despite their present and even future failures. Then, to deal with the third area of anxiety for us, our pastor will take you to another passage that shows that God is willing to put your past behind you as well. I hope you'll listen. By the way, this Saturday, March 11th, is our annual Wild Game Supper at 6 p.m. in our church's family center. We'd love for you to come. Calkins Baptist Church is located at 527 Calkins Road in Milanville, Pennsylvania. And so if you're within driving distance and would like to enjoy a great meal, a meaningful message from God's Word, and the latest news from the Pennsylvania Game Commission, please make plans to join us. So let's get to our message today entitled The Incredible Love of Christ for his own. Good morning. So good to be with you for another Beacon of Hope broadcast. If you've been following our program over the last few months, you would know that we've been following Christ around and trying to take the events of his life in the order in which he lived them. Now we're coming to the last week of Jesus' earthly life in ministry, and so the goal of getting everything in perfect order may not always be able to be realized. Some Part of the reason for that difficulty lies in the fact that much of the material in each of the four Gospels is devoted to this final week of Christ's life that starts with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and ends with his resurrection. In fact, let me give you a few few stats, if you like that type of thing, from each of the Gospels so that you can see how weighted each is toward Jesus' Passion Week or, again, the last week of his life. To give you a reference point, a week in the life of Christ, he lives roughly 33 years. That's going to be less than six one-hundredths of one percent of his time on earth. Or if you just look at his public ministry of about three years plus, then you get a week is about six-tenths of one percent of Christ's public ministry. Yet Luke starts his coverage of Christ's last week at chapter 19, partway through that chapter, so he's devoting about 19% of his gospel to one week of Jesus' life. Uh, Matthew starts his coverage of Jesus' last week at chapter 21, which means that 28% of his gospel is devoted to the last week of Christ's life. Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. He starts covering triumphal entry at chapter 11, which means 31% of his gospel is devoted devoted to one week in Jesus' life, and the Gospel of John uses even more. He starts out his coverage of Christ last week at chapter 12. That's 42% of his Gospel coverage dealing with Jesus last week. So why so much emphasis? On this one seven-day period, well, it should be obvious that these are the most momentous days in human history. This also means that some of the accounts, because there's so many events that they're dealing with during that one week, it's hard sometimes to get the accounts in the exact right order. And so, last week I linked together Christ's final Passover, or we call commonly call the Last Supper, with his establishment of the Lord's Supper, often called Holy Communion or the Eucharist. These two ceremonies, Passover and the First Communion, were observed only minutes apart. Yet, in fact, some good scholars are going to tell you that there's conversations that are recorded elsewhere that are kind of in between them. And so... Uh, that's where the dilemma comes. We're going to actually jump in to 
a conversation that Jesus is going to have, and it's somewhere in the upper room during the Passover celebrations where I'm going to guess it's at, or it could be even during part of the Last Supper. But these, this conversation that Jesus has with Peter and then with the other disciples really illustrates an incredible love that Christ has for his own disciples. And so before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we're very grateful because we know we can doubt your love, especially, Lord, when we fail you. And there's lots of things we can point to, failures of the past, failures in the present, um, and unfortunately, failures that are still to come in our lives. And so we would just pray, Lord, that you would help us as we look into your word to see your incredible love for those who belong to you. And we pray for any who yet do not belong to you, that even today would be the day when they humble their hearts before you, repent of their sin, and accept Christ as Savior. For those that do know you that are listening, I pray you'd encourage their hearts. And may this be just a, a real comfort and strength to them as they listen today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see Christ's loyalty. I'm going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, for the most part this morning. And I'm going to pick up at verse 24. And we're seeing Christ's loyalty and love toward his own disciples, despite what I'll call their present failures. And so I'm reading at Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 24. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And you almost could think of just the disappointment at this still going on. And this is a lesson that Jesus has taught his disciples on more than one occasion before. And that is that he's trying to help them to understand not to put themselves first, not to be so concerned about their rank and their status in the upcoming kingdom. And let me just show you a couple times when this happened in earlier days. The first one is when they were debating and discussing and arguing which of them should be the greatest. I'm going to use Mark's account for this one. It's Mark chapter 9 and verse 33 to 37. And uh, again, tragically, the disciples are struggling with, with their pride and their self-advancement, things that honestly don't go away in our generation either. All right, I'm in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. It says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called one of the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, Matthew records this same account and he adds one detail that I think is very important. And that is, in, he's, he's writing about this in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5. But in verse 3, he makes this note. He said, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's an important statement because Judas was in that group. And unfortunately, Judas never did humble his heart, never did turn his life over the, to the Lord 
and and was never born again. And of course, he eventually betrayed the Lord uh, late in Jesus' ministry. Matter of fact, just uh, a, a short period of time from when these events are taking place. Now, so we see we know of one event, and it's marked by when Jesus took a, a little child and put him in the midst of them. But there's another account that is very similar. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, but it's, it's obviously a different account. Matthew chapter 20, and I'm starting at verse 20 and reading down to verse 28. And what's going on is Jesus has two of his closest disciples, James and John, their brothers. And James and John's mother is also a friend of our Lord. As a matter of fact, it's possible that she even was one of Jesus' relatives. And so I'm picking up at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be James and John, came to him, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, now the ten would be the other ten of the twelve disciples. When the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So you can understand how, first of all, James and John's, I don't know whose idea it was, if it was one of them or, or their mom, basically decided, hey, you know, we kind of have an in with Christ. Why don't we just ask for what we want? Why don't we ask to see if, if he would let you guys be the top two officials in the upcoming kingdom. And so they, mom comes with, with them, and mom does the asking. You know, I'd like you to put my two sons in the top two spots. Well, when the other ten heard about what happened, you can understand they're, they're not so much going to be angry with, with mom, although there would be some frustration there, but basically they're angry with James and John for letting their mom do this. And I'm sure this would have been a, because it says here that they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So what does Jesus do about this? Jesus called to them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So that was a very difficult time as well, as once again, the disciples are jockeying for the best position in the upcoming kingdom, thinking that it's going to come you know, very soon within their lifetime. So we, what we see is Jesus has already taught this lesson about stop trying to seek what's best for yourself. Seek to be a servant rather than to be a leader. He's taught this lesson already a couple times. And yet they're still failing to follow Christ's teaching. And while we know that, 
is because in Luke's account, in verse 24 of chapter 22, where it's our main passage, it says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest, which means they're still, they're still going through this. Now, before we're too hard on these men, let's try to also think about this question. That is, are there areas in your own life, and I can ask myself the same question, are there areas in our lives that Christ has taught us the right thing, and yet we've struggled repeatedly to obey a command that you knew or I knew God wanted you to obey? Let me just give you some of the issues that Christians struggle sometimes in this generation in which we live. Well, alcohol has been a problem since um, for since or centuries and millennia. We know that alcohol can really cause disruption of homes. It can destroy people's lives, destroy their health. Uh, maybe you as a Christian are struggling with that issue. Uh, maybe it's lust. Now, there's always been a problem with lust. The scripture talks about it. Jesus had said, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. But you know, with the age of the internet and with mass media and, and smartphones, pornography and all kinds of, of evil are right literally at our fingertips. And has God dealt with you on the issue of what your entertainment is or what you're letting your mind feed on and are you dealing with that issue or are you again falling down on obedience what about temper you know it's something that many times god may speak to a man or a woman about the fact that you lose your temper a lot and as a christian you know it's the right thing to to be more long-suffering and to have a better spirit but Boy, just sometimes it just seems to jump out at you, and there you are, failing in the area of temper again. Some Christians struggle with dishonesty. They say, well, the government's got enough of my tax money. I don't have to claim everything. They get paid under the table, uh, cash, so that they don't have to count that. And many times Christians don't think a thing of it. Or... They are in a situation where it's much easier to lie, and so they uh, say something that they know is not true. Other Christians struggle with gossip. The idea of, of sharing information about someone that doesn't need to be shed, that is very uh, uh, shared, and it's very destructive and harmful. You know, we do a lot of that in the political realm, too. Somehow we think that those people don't matter. Oh, there's also just all kinds of unkind words that can come out of our mouths. And many Christians struggle with that. Matter of fact, the Bible says that if, if a man is able to control his tongue, you're able to control the rest of your body. And so unkind words, mean words, uh, demeaning, things that, that are just dirty or wrong, so easy to slip out of the mouth, even of God's children. How about pride? You're looking down our nose at other people, thinking that we're better than others, uh, looking at our job or our finances or whatever it is that we think gets us up on everybody else, and pride is a real issue uh, for many of us. How about gluttony? We often don't talk about that in this generation, but the reality is we have so much food available to us and good things to enjoy and, and sweets and etc. That, that sometimes we can go overboard on that one too and not take care of the body that God has given us. What about bitterness? The idea of hanging on to some kind of anger in your heart towards someone and you just won't let it go. 
you replay over and over and over again a hurt that's been laid upon you. I, I know one individual in my church right now that has, I think, long, many decades now, dealt with a real bitter um, attitude toward a former spouse, and it just, I think it's it's very difficult. And I'm praying for that individual to get victory over that. What about selfishness? You know, that's what the disciples are dealing with. They, Everybody wants to be first or, or one of the two top spots in the kingdom. And we're thinking about, this is what I want, my, my way. And so we often just want, again, my number one, I want to be ahead of, of everybody else. And what about lack of forgiveness? Maybe you have someone that confessed a sin to you, a failure, and you just won't want let it go. You're just hanging on to it, and you're never going to forgive them. And that's kind of where you're at. Again, do Christians ever struggle with forgiveness? Yeah, they do. And many of these disciples seem to be struggling with that same issue. What about just unbelief? God has said something in his word, and you just don't believe it, and you're not going to live by it. These are all ways that we can, unfortunately, know the right thing, have the right teaching. We know that these things are things that we ought to forsake, sins that we ought to give to the Lord. And, and, and sometimes we have victory over a period of time, but then all of a sudden that sin comes back. And so when we think about the disciples struggling again with wanting to be first in the kingdom, let's just remind ourselves that many times we struggle with the same idea of having we know what we ought to do or ought not to do and doing it anyway. So what does Jesus do about this? Does he, and he had every right, wouldn't he have to said, listen, fellas, I've talked to you about this. I put the child in front of you. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember when Peter, excuse me, when James and John and their mom came to me and how I dealt with you and said, don't worry about being number one and be a servant and said, guys, why don't you get that? Well, instead of, Taking that tactic, if you recall, on this very same night, Jesus washed those disciples' feet, did something that only the servants do. And then he said, I want you to follow my example. Well, they're still struggling with this. And so Jesus comes along and he gives them some teaching that sounds very similar to what he'd given them before. I'm in Luke chapter 22 again, verse 25. And he said to them, that kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. So he's saying, here's how it works with, with the rulers of the nations. And that is, when he says the Gentiles, the idea of the nations of the world. He's, he's saying great people rule over what we would, I guess, have to say lesser people. Shouldn't be that way, but that's how we look at it sometimes. And great people work to help lesser people. And that was one of the great concepts that our founding fathers uh, stated very clearly, and that is all men are created equal. And so, thank the Lord in our society, we take that pretty well for granted, even if people don't understand that, that it's all based in the fact that God is our creator. That's why we're equal. So we don't look at each other, by, by and large, and, and say, well, so-and-so is wealthier than I am, therefore he's better than I am. But Jesus is saying that's how the nations of the world tend to operate. You have these important people, so to speak, that that's how they would look at it. They rule over everybody else, and they're the benefactors. They're, they're the ones that are supposed to help those who are below them. 
But Jesus says, no, that's, that's not how it's going to be in my kingdom, fellas. Verse 26, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger, as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. So he's, here's how Jesus says it's going to work in my kingdom. First of all, the God's finest servants are going to live out their lives with four characteristics. Number one, humbling themselves. So he says, be like the younger brother. You know, like the young, and, and I was the younger brother. My, my brother was four and a half years older than me. And so growing up, I looked up to him. Uh, he definitely had influence on me. I don't know if I had all that much influence on him. Uh, he was stronger than I was because, again, he's that much older than me. So until we got into our teenage, until we both were in our teenage years, it was, you know, there was nothing, nothing I was going to do about that. We, we did a lot of things together, but he was the leader. I was the younger. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be great in my kingdom, here's how you're going to have to live on earth. First of all, you've got to humble yourselves like a younger brother. You've got to serve others. He said, you know, you're not going to be like the governor who rules over everybody. Be like the one who serves everybody. He goes on, verse 27, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Well, it's obvious. The guy who is the greater in the world's eyes is the one that's sitting at the table, and the servants are the ones that are the lesser. It's interesting. It's sad to me. I've never had a lot of wealth where we've had servants or anything like that or even hired hands around. But I've heard, and I believe from more than just one person, about uh, going to work for someone who is wealthy. And one of the things that these, this person said to uh, the, their worker was, I don't want you to ever look at me. I, to me, that's very sad. It really is. Don't ever look at me. Now, I, I guess they want privacy in their home or whatever. But the reality is, that's not the spirit of Christ. Christ's spirit that he is saying is, is how, this is how you live on earth. Humble yourself be like that younger brother, serve other people, and then verse 27, follow my example. Because he says, the, who's greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. And if you recall, he had just a, a little while before washed their feet like a common servant. So he says, fellas, I want you to humble yourself to serve others, to follow my example. And, and one more thing that he's asking them to do on earth, and that is to Follow him continually, even through the trials of life. Even when things go difficult and, and you're struggling, maybe you don't understand what God is doing. So he says this next, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. They had been loyal. Now Judas has already been uh, dismissed, so he's not with them anymore. These are the 11 loyal disciples, and here's how they lived out their earthly lives, humbling themselves, serving other people, following Jesus' example, continuing through trials. And then in verse 29 and 30, Jesus describes how these servants who really take those four attributes, how they will be rewarded in his kingdom. And he goes on, he says, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me. So he's saying, you're going to be rewarded for your responsibility, for your love for me. I'm going to reward you. And, and he says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So 
in, in honor of those who serve the Lord and humble themselves and follow Jesus' example and continue even through the trials of life to serve the Lord, Jesus said, you'll be rewarded with responsibility and you will have continual fellowship with me. That's what he means when he's talking about the fact that you'll eat and drink at my table. Continual fellowship with the Lord. How wonderful is that for eternity? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Now, it's Jesus is showing here a loyal love toward these men. They have failed in the present to remember a, a lesson he's already given them a couple times before. And yet, he doesn't beat them up, tell them to get lost, uh, just kind of verbally uh, beat them down. Instead, he gives them an example by washing their feet and now reminds them, hey, follow my footsteps, fellas. Be a servant. Humble yourself. Follow my example. Stay with me, even through trials. What a gracious response to these men in their failure in the present. But there's another interesting passage right after this. And it also, I, I, I think, shows a failure in the present. And that is, there's, he's got a new lesson for them, and they're not going to get it. At least not that evening, it seems. I'm, I'm reading now, I'm skipping down to verse 35, and we'll come back and get the verses in between in a, in a few moments. Jesus says this unto them, When I sent you without money, bag, or knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Now what he's referring to is back earlier in his ministry, he had sent them out to the different cities of Israel to proclaim that he the, the kingdom was here and that Israel needed to repent. And so they went on in group of, groups of twos, and he told them, don't take any preparations with you. Don't take any money sack. Don't take two garments. He, he really was very strict on the fact of no preparation ahead of time. God will meet your needs. But now... He says, and so that's what he's referring to. He's going back there. He's saying, okay, now, fellas, when you didn't have any money bag, you didn't have a knapsack, which would be where you'd keep your, your uh, food provisions. You didn't have um, any extra sandals. Did you lack anything? And they said no. Verse 36, then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now, why is he saying this, and and what is he saying? It seems that the knapsack and the and the money bag and the sword are showing that there's a change during Christ's public ministry when he was there on earth with them. He was overall popular, very popular among the common people. That's one of the reasons why it's so foolish to be um, angry with the Jewish people because of Christ's crucifixion. That's foolish it's because in Jesus' lifetime, his ministry, he had probably had far more people that loved him than he did that hated him. Now, the leadership hated him, but let's be honest. Do we not have corrupt leadership throughout the nations of the world today? I don't care what nation you want to deal with in in when you have a godly leader in a, a government, that's rare. It just really is, down through human history. And so in Jesus' day, the leadership was corrupt. They rejected him, and they got a number of people, a number of common people to go along with him. But I would, I would dare to guess that, that many, many 
of the common Jewish people loved our Lord and wanted to follow him. All of his disciples are Jewish. He is Jewish himself. So anti-Semitism makes absolutely no sense. But Jesus is saying, okay, during my public ministry, fellas, you didn't, you didn't have to take any provisions and everything was met. Every, every part of your need was met. But now he says, now, if you have a, take a money bag with you. Take your knapsack with some food provisions, obviously, with it. And sell your garment and get a sword. Now he goes on. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, so what's going on? Jesus, and I'm glad he did this, because if he didn't make these kind of statements here at the end of his ministry, we might be tempted to think everybody who goes out as a missionary should do absolutely do no preparation. And that's not what our Lord is saying. He's actually saying, okay, earlier you had the chance to go out. All your needs were met without any preparation. He's saying now you're going to need to make preparation. You're going to need to save up some money. You're going to need to have provisions like food. You're going to need to think about safety like a sword. Because I'm going to be numbered, Jesus was saying, with the transgressors. People are going to look at me from now on as if I'm a sinner, I was evil. And of course, that's what would be the, the, the line that the nation's leaders would be pushing on the common people. And just like in our day, people in leadership have a huge influence on, on the rest of us. You look at all kinds of issues that that is true. How is it that Adolf Hitler could have such an influence on the minds of the German people. Well, he was a man who got into power and he used that power effectively, wickedly, but effectively. And so it is that that leaders can have a very powerful influence on the common people. And so Jesus is going to be numbered with the transgressors among the leadership of the nation, and many people are going to look at him that way. And so he's saying, fellas, you're going to have to think a little differently when you do ministry from now on. you got to think about having enough money, about having enough food and provisions, and even about personal safety. Now, he even told them the scripture predicted this. He said, for the, this which is written must be accomplished in me. And he, he quoted of these numbered with the transgressors. And so that's out of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. So it's not going to be as easy. There's not going to be the favor that, that these men had during Christ's public time on earth. He was going to be slandered as a criminal, and his disciples then would have a harder time ministering in the future. By the way, many times they would not go into the nation of Israel. They're even going to be out in Gentile regions where Jesus' public ministry was, was known basically nothing. They would know about that. And so there was much issue with going out into the nations of the world. They would have to think about their safety, their provisions, their money. Now, where did their focus go, though? And I can just see this. I, I think if I was there, I'd have thought about the same thing. What rang in those disciples' minds? Not the money and the, the idea of, okay, we got to prepare when we go to minister, but the swords. And they're probably thinking, well, Christ has been talking about being betrayed. 
etc. So where do their minds go? To the swords. And they, they turn around and they say, Lord, look, here are two swords. And if I was them, I'd begin to, okay, Jesus said we need to have swords. So I'd begin to plot, okay, how are we going to get ten more at least? And then our Lord says, it is enough. And there, people have wondered, what does he mean by that? Well, it seems that they missed his point, that they focused in on the swords, and Jesus' point would be understood eventually, and that is that they should make preparations for ministry from now on. But it seemed like they missed, they just, they just well, that went over their heads. They, they got into thinking about the fact that they're going to need some swords to defend themselves. Well, what do we see? So far, we see these men are, are men. They are sinful men. They're not perfect guys. They're struggling with sin of self-advancement. They're not getting everything Jesus is trying to explain to them. And Jesus loves them anyway. His love, as John would say in John 13, he loved them to the end. Now, he's not only going to love them in present times of failure, he knows that they're going to fail him in just a little while. They're going to fail him in a big way. And so there's two different conversations where Jesus brings up the future failures of his disciples to them. And the first one is in the upper room itself. It's back in our text again, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 34. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Now, that is Peter. It's one of Peter's uh, names. So he's talking to Peter. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, Notice Jesus' actions here. He's warning Peter of Satan's imminent attack. He's saying Satan has, has asked God, that's who he's asked, for permission to get at you, Peter. And it really reminds me of the statement that Jesus made in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And many translate this, and this is how it is in the New King James, deliver us from the evil one, or Satan. And so Jesus is really warning Peter, Satan is, is after you. And he's then he's trying to encourage him because he's saying, I have prayed for you. Jesus is interceding on Peter's behalf. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that asks a question, who is he who condemns? Then it goes on, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And if you are a child of God, I can, I can tell you on the basis of the scripture that Jesus is interceding for you when you need it. What an encouragement that is to me. And he also says something else. He not only says, no, Peter, Satan is after you. He's, he wants to sift you as wheat. Then he says, I have prayed for you. But then he gives some encouragement that, Peter, you're going to, you're going to come out of this okay. He says, you will, when you have returned to me. So, Peter, you are going to come back. Then he says, strengthen your brethren. What he means by that is, Peter, you're still going to be used to lead. You're going to actually be needed to strengthen your brothers. Now, unfortunately, Peter doesn't believe Jesus here. You know, if you ask Peter, is Jesus, is Jesus the Messiah? He would have said, absolutely. Is he the then sinless son of God? I think he would have said yes. But the problem is, 
he is still struggling in his mind as to exactly who Jesus is because he he doesn't believe him. Notice his answer. But he said to him, but this is Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So he, he just can't accept that Jesus says that you're in danger of Satan sifting you as wheat and that you're going to return, which means that Peter is going to actually fall away from a close walk with God. So he doesn't take Jesus' warning to heart here, seems to be too overconfident to listen to Christ, and he doesn't believe Jesus' prophecy. He seems too proud to believe he could fail so miserably. And so that's the first conversation. Now, well, I'm not done with it because Jesus has this answer to him. Then he said, this is Jesus' reply, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. Can you imagine that? Jesus is saying, Peter, before, before daylight, really, you're going to three times deny that you even know me. Now, Peter is going to have a hard time swallowing that one. But that was what Jesus said. Now, there's a second conversation that Jesus has, and this one is out near the Garden of Gethsemane. Just a, a short time later, they, they leave the upper room. They walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is in during this time, between the, the upper room and when Judas will betray him in the garden, that Jesus also has this conversation then with his disciples. And he's also telling them all that they are going to abandon him. I'm picking it up at Mark's account, chapter 14 and verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus again warns this time all the disciples that they're going to abandon him. And he quoted to them Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7, which said this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones." And so there was this prophecy that the shepherd, that would be Christ, would be struck. And of course, that would be involved in his arrest. And the sheep, that would be the disciples, would be scattered. And then it says, I'll turn my hand against the little ones. That seems to indicate the difficulty that the disciples now would have as they've been scattered away from their Lord. But again, notice Jesus saying to his disciples that he was not done with them even after they would fail him in the future because he says, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's not saying, you're done when you fail me, fellas. He's saying, nope. He says, when, when I'm risen from the dead, I'm going to see up in Galilee. But Peter, speaking up again, verse 29 of Mark's account says, even if all were made to stumble, yet I will not be. So he's proudly proclaiming, Jesus, you're wrong about me. Reminds me of Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So Peter is saying, I will remain loyal to you no matter what the others do. Now Jesus again tries to warn him. Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you, 
that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke the more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. So you'll notice Peter proudly proclaiming, Jesus, you're wrong about me. I am going to be loyal to you. I'm not going to forsake you. And I believe he's doing this not trying to show off. I believe Peter's sincere about this, but he's sincerely wrong. He, he thinks too highly of himself. Folks, we are so weak. And sometimes people fail you. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or one of your children or maybe one of your parents. And they're, they're a believer. Maybe they're a true believer. And you struggle with this. It's like, well, this person is, is supposed to be my, my, my loved one or maybe even a good, very good friend. And they failed you miserably. And you're struggling with that. Can I just say that... Folks, that's what we're made of. We're, we're flesh. We are sinners. And we repeatedly fail our Lord. And so Peter here cannot imagine that he would ever deny our Lord. And so he's saying, that basically, Jesus, you're wrong about this. Whether anybody, everybody else deserts you, I'm going to remain loyal. And I'm going to die before I would ever deny you. Now, the other disciples then follow Peter's example, and they say basically the same thing. Yeah, we'll never deny you. It's interesting that bad examples often sound good when they're first uttered, and, and that's Peter's words here. The other disciples follow through. It sounds like the right thing to say, but it wasn't. Does God love you when you fail in the present? The answer is yes. Will God love you if you fail in the future? And the answer again is yes. If you know Christ as Savior, you are under the love of God, and that love does not change. Now, I didn't deal with, and this, this passage does not deal with, failures in the past, because some of you may be struggling with that. So even though it's not in this account, I want to take you to one spot where it is. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to pick up at verses 9 to 11, and it's talking in this passage about, about Christians who've genuinely been born again, but boy, do they have some failures in the past. And this is before their conversion. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, so let's be, un let's be clear here. I'm not saying that you can live any way you please and get to heaven. That's not what God is saying, and that's not what that I want you to think I'm saying, because the scripture is very clear on this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He goes on, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now he listed there ten different sins that can uh, people can commit in, in his generation, and they commit them today. Fornication, the idea of sexual sins. The word is pornea, from where we get pornography, by the way. Idolaters, putting something ahead of God. Adulterers, we know what that is. A married person um, being unfaithful to their spouse or or being unfaithful to with, with a married person, uh, having sex with a married person. Number four is homosexuality. Number five is sodomy. 
And there's a real push today to try to say, well, these are not sins. They're just choices and etc. No, the scripture is very clear on this, that homosexuality and sodomy are both sins against God. He mentions thieves next, stealing. He mentions greed next. He mentions drunkenness. He mentions what he calls revilers here or verbally abusive people. And then extortioners, you know, basically threatening people and using that type of uh, violence in order to uh, take them, take money from them, etc. Now he's saying, and it comes right to the end of this: nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So these, the people that are committing these sins, are not on their way to heaven. But and so, what do you say? Well, what if I've had these sins in my past, or what if they're in my present right now? Well, may I say to you? That by God's grace, you can put them in the past and you can put them under the blood of Christ. Because notice what he says next. It's, it's 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. And such were some of you. Paul's saying that some of you in the church of Corinth, you were doing those very same sins. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying that in spite of your past... You've been washed, which means you've been cleansed from all your past. You've been sanctified, which means you've been set apart to be used for God's glory. Think of, um, of having some rags, okay, that, that you had... You were so impoverished that you had hardly any clothes that were could, you could wear. They were filthy. They're dirty. There's like one pair of, of pants and a shirt, and that's all you've got, and, and they're disgusting. And God not only saves you, but and and puts you in his family, but he gives you a new set of clothes and he even gives you more than just one new set. He gives you the idea of, of some special uniform. And if you are a worker, maybe you can think of a, of a work uniform or if you like sports, a sports uniform. The idea of sanctified means it's set apart for a specific use. And so when we get our kids on our uh, homeschool basketball team, when we get our kids jerseys, they're not to wear them to practice. They're not to wear them um, out to play football. They're only to be worn on the basketball court during the games. Well, that's what sanctified means. So it means this, that God not only forgives your past and cleanses you from your past when you accept Christ as Savior, but then he gives you a new identity. He gives you a purpose. You are sanctified. You're set apart to do something for his glory and his kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? He says you're washed, you're sanctified, and then he says you're justified. That idea of being justified means you are now declared, instead of a criminal, you're declared righteous. If any of you have come from a criminal background, you would know better than I that you go to prison for a while and then you get out. It's one thing to get your freedom back and to get off probation, but sometimes it can be very difficult to get a job. Why? Because people look at you, unfortunately, they look at you as a criminal, even though you've already paid for your, your crimes. But you know, not so with God. When God forgives you, he says you're justified. You are now declared to be righteous. You're de declared to be one of his children who is righteous. And I think, when I think of this, I think of Mary Magdalene, who was possessed with seven demons. How tragic and terrible was that? And what sins had she committed that brought that on? And what sins did she commit under the demonic influence? We don't know. God doesn't tell us, and that's fine. We just know that she had seven demons. But you know what? When Jesus delivered her from those demons... She's a new woman. 
She was one of the most loyal followers of Christ. At Jesus' crucifixion, Mary Magdalene was at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother, with, with John, uh, Jesus' disciple. They're the only ones that we know by name that were right there at the, at the very end. Isn't it interesting that Mary Magdalene was right there? Now, there's some other ladies that were there. Uh, we don't know for all, how many of the 12 disciples actually were, saw the crucifixion. Maybe they all did. But we know Mary Magdalene was there. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus appeared for the very first time to any human after his resurrection, it wasn't to Peter, it wasn't to John, it wasn't to James or any one of his disciples, it wasn't even to his mother, it was to Mary Magdalene. And I sure, I'm sure the disciples struggled with that for a little bit. It's like, why wouldn't he appear to us? Well, the bottom line is this. Mary Magdalene, just like everybody else, had a past. But she had been washed. She was now sanctified to God. And she was living that sanctified life. And she was a new creature. She was a justified, she a righteous person. The reality is Mary went to that tomb. And Jesus appeared to her. So what do we conclude from this passage of Scripture? Well, we see that Jesus loyally loves his true followers. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, God's loyal love for you does not depend and will not be diminished by your past failures or even your present failures or even failures that you may make in the future. Because God's love is perfect and something that is perfect doesn't change. You also need to think about this, and that is, am I a true follower of, of Jesus Christ? Because, you know, if you're living a life of evil, there can be one of two things. Can Christians struggle with evil? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they can. But the other possibility is that you never have really genuinely come to know the Lord. Maybe you've been in church and maybe you've prayed prayers and all the rest. But the reality is you've never really understood that you were the lost person that Jesus came to save and that you have never really repented of your sins and turned your life over to Christ. Maybe you're just trusting a prayer you prayed at some point or some catechism or some uh, baptism that you went through and you're really not um, you're really not changed. So let me just warn you that that could be the case with you. And I'm going to read to you out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It's right toward the end of Christ's great Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there are some people that consider themselves Christians, but the reality is their lives are demonstrating that, there, that there's no change. The Holy Spirit does not dwell within. Do Christians struggle with sin? Yes, they do. But they don't just practice it throughout their whole lives with no concern about God. That's not a child of God. That's a child still of the devil. But I will say this, that much of the guilt that Christians feel and deal with is satanic in origin. I say much of it, not all of it. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. There is legitimate guilt. If you're rebelling against God and you refuse to repent, then 
there's a problem, Christian. If you're saying to yourself, no, I'm going to hang on to my anger or my bitterness, or I'm going to hang on to my bad habit, or I'm not going to come clean about the dishonesty with my income tax, or I'm not going to apologize to my son after I yelled at him. If you're going to hold God at arm's length, Christian, then guilt is legitimate. But let me tell you, there is a false guilt, a guilt that Satan tries to heap on God's people, and that is by getting you to beat yourself up because of sins in your past. This is guilt that you feel for sins. I'm talking about sins you've you've committed, yes, but you have confessed and forsaken before God, and you've also dealt with anybody who needs restitution. If you've truly come clean on a sin, then don't let Satan come back and beat you up with false guilt. Because Jesus does love you, and his love is perfect when you accept Christ as Savior. And so as a result of listening to this message, I pray, first of all, that if you're experiencing that false guilt over sins that you've repented of and you've confessed before God, let that go. Whether or not you feel forgiven, you are forgiven when you confess your sins to God. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But secondly, I pray that despite the failures of your past, that you will return. Because some of you may be in that spot where you feel like I've sinned so greatly against God. Maybe even this week, I, I I don't see any way forward. Let me tell you that Jesus foresaw your failure. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying it wasn't great. I'm saying this, that Jesus foresaw it and he will help you. And he can make something out of your life if you'll truly turn to him in repentance and faith. The Bible says that he who confesses and forsakes shall have mercy. Because the bottom line is simply this. God's love overwhelms his children's failures. Oh, dear friend, if if that's where you're at, if you've sinned against God and you feel like "I've I've just really pushed him off too much, turn around. Listen to Jesus' words. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me. I pray that you would do that and find the peace of God and the power of God again in your life. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. Let me invite you again to join us for our church's annual Wild Game Supper on Saturday, March 11th at 6 p.m. This free dinner mainly consists of homemade dishes that area hunters fix from the game they've harvested over the past hunting season. The meal is to be held at our family center at 527 Calkins Road, Milanville, Pennsylvania. You're welcome to come and join us. Reservations are not necessary but are helpful for planning the meal. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.